This is Reimagine Law, a podcast about legal education and careers to help students navigate their career choices. Welcome to episode five. Fran and I are delighted to be joined today by Judge Tan Ikram. Judge Ikram is the Deputy Senior District Judge and the Deputy Lead Judge for Diversity and Community Relations, and he sits at Westminster Magistrates Court, dealing especially with extradition matters. Judge Ikram, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you very much for your time and for joining us. Um, Perhaps just to explain to the listeners, first of all, so you focus on extradition. What does that mean to that day to day? Well, um, people travel across the world. Uh, Some people who will come to England and Wales uh, will possibly have been running away from trouble in their own countries. They may be wanted um, to start a prison sentence. They might be wanted because the other judge in another country wants to try them for a criminal offence. So they will make a request either to the Home Secretary if it's outside the European Union or the judge himself or herself will sign a warrant within the European Union uh, asking me to send that person back to that other country. And that is a decision which has to initially be made by a judge. Um, My decision is kind of final, subject to appeal within the European Union. But outside the European Union, I give my opinion to the Home Secretary. And ultimately, and legally, the decision is of the Home Secretary. That's really interesting. I mean, that immediately takes my mind to all the different worlds you you link with, you say, at a European level, at a national government level. So there are many different layers almost to your role. Um, and it led me to think also of how broad the role of, you know, a judge being in the judiciary must be. Perhaps could you give us, uh, our listeners a flavour of, you know, what are, what are the breadth of those roles in, in the judiciary? Yeah, well, uh, the, the largest group of judges, in fact, are magistrates. Magistrates are not legally qualified. They sit in panels of two and three in the magistrates' court. And I think there are about 13,000 of them. And they deal with most criminal cases in this country. Uh, A small number of cases will go to the Crown Court, where they will be dealt with by a jury. But beyond the magistrates, the largest single group of judges are those in the tribunals. And they will be hearing appeals brought often by citizens uh, against the decisions of all sorts of bodies. Uh, In fact, I started my career um, many centuries ago dealing with parking tickets. And uh, in London, they decriminalized uh, what became known as penalty charge notices. But if you got a penalty charge notice and you didn't think it was fair, it wasn't lawful, you could appeal to a parking adjudicator. So I was a tribunal judge. So the tribunal judges deal with all sorts of appeals in all sorts of different environments. It may be that you uh, want to argue that you are not receiving the child maintenance that you should be receiving, or that the benefits you're receiving uh, are not the correct amount, all sorts of appeals. In the civil law system, uh, we have the county court judges, the district judges there, and we also have circuit judges who deal with civil cases. And of course, then there are also the judges in the family court, and they may be magistrates, they may be district judges, they may be circuit judges. Beyond that, we have the high court judges, a smaller number, who deal um, often at first instance, in other words, they make the initial decision in lots of civil uh, uh, law cases, but they also hear appeals, and they will hear appeals, for example, against my extradition decision. So when I've made a decision, 
to extradite somebody or if I refused to make that decision, the appeal will go to a single High Court judge who will first decide if there's any merit in it to see whether, in fact, they should even be allowed an appeal. And if they do think that there is a reason to allow an, uh, an argument, then they may grant or refuse the appeal. Beyond the High Court, there's the Court of Appeal. Um, they deal with both civil and criminal law um, appeals. There is right at the top uh, a court um, which deals with the whole of the United Kingdom uh, as distinct from England and Wales uh, because of I am a judge only of England and Wales. Um, there is the Supreme Court and they hear appeals uh, from Scotland, Northern Ireland and the legal system of England and Wales. Fascinating. Well, what a, what, what a breadth. And as you say, there we are, we've touched on the whole dynamic as well of the UK as well and the different, as you say, the different, different uh, England and Wales. You know, so I've worked with solicitors who generally work through to their, their graduate years and then qualify, as, um, qualify in England and Wales. But again, we're looking more broadly. Fran, I'll hand over to yourself at this point because I know you, you, you had some thoughts and questions as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the breadth of the different roles available is, is huge, perhaps much more than our listeners might have first imagined. Um, and it's interesting that you say that there's a huge um, difference in terms of the experience and the training as well that those judicial roles um, might bring with them. Um, am I right, Judge Ikram, that there are also part-time judicial roles and full-time judicial roles available? Well, uh, I started off talking about the magistrates. The magistrates are volunteers. They're not legally qualified. Anyone can become a magistrate. Uh, and they will sit up to 50 days a year, 30 days a year, something like that. All judges, generally speaking, I say all judges, there are a few exceptions. But if you want to become a judge in England and Wales, you start off as a part-time judge first. And we call them fee-paid judges. So in my jurisdiction, uh, they're called deputy district judges uh, in the tribunals. In fact, they don't have a different title. They're all called tribunal judges, interestingly. Um, in the Crown Court, they've got, been given the rather bizarre title of recorder, which is a very odd title, but a recorder is a part-time judge of the Crown Court. In the High Court, they're called deputy High Court judges. So your mixed practice uh, or, or academia, because not all judges uh, are practitioners in private practice. Some are in government legal service, some are academics. Uh, and they will sit for up to 50 days a year, they'll be appraised, uh, and then if they want to progress, and not all part-time judges want to become full-time judges, they then apply again to become what's called a salaried judge. Uh, and that can take three, five years, some in fact take longer. Uh, and then once you are a salaried judge, then you give up all your outside links. So uh, someone like me who was a partner in a law firm, had to give up my partnership in my law firm, sever all my links, so that my only source of income then became that uh, as a judge. Presumably that's the, the independence then coming into it with, with the, the severing of links, yeah, yeah. Um, so we heard earlier that you are a diversity and community relations judge, in fact, the deputy lead in this area. Um, perhaps you could just tell our listeners, like, what does this mean in practice? What, what's your role in relation to that? Um, a lot of people say to me, I've never met a judge before, um, and I know this is a podcast, but I sometimes think I don't look like a judge. Uh, and people have lots of misconceptions about who we are, uh, about what we do, where we come from, whether we are a stooge of the state, for example. Um, 
And so we as community uh, uh, relations judges, as diversity judges, hook up with the community. We talk to students, we talk to community groups so that we can explain who we are and what we really do and where we come from. So it's about dispelling some of the myths around us. I went to a polytechnic. I didn't go to a posh university. Uh, I don't come from a posh family. Uh, my dad was a postman. My mum worked in a factory. And, you know, a lot of people think all judges are very posh. and They're all from very elite universities. No, actually, a lot of us are very ordinary people. So one of the functions we have is to go out there and just explain who we are and about things like the rule of law and judicial independence and the fact that we are completely independent of the state. We're not politically interested in our decisions. What we do is we apply the law and make a decision in accordance with law. And it's really, really important. And one of the great things about our legal system is I think we can safely and honestly say we have a robustly independent judiciary and we do have the rule of law. And we take that for granted. The idea that everyone is subject to the law doesn't always happen across the world. Um, so, I mean, this might be quite an obvious answer, but why is it that diversity is so important within our judiciary? What, in your opinion, what is the, the key thing about why it's so important? Diversity. Where do I start? Well, <laughs> you know, I've always been into justice. So why shouldn't there be justice in becoming a judge? Why shouldn't everyone have an equal chance if they're good enough to become a judge? But beyond that, there has to be legitimacy. There has to be a reflection. Now, for example, I sit in a criminal court. And the purpose of criminal law is to express our disapproval as society on behavior which we as society find unacceptable. Sometimes we lock them up. Sometimes we support them and change them through rehabilitation. But we must be reflective of the society that we serve. And that means we must come from all walks of life. And then there's another very important issue. Not all of us see things in the same way. The law is the law, and each judge will come to their own opinion about what the law says. But we don't necessarily see the world in the same way. And we may come from it from a different angle, from our own particular experiences. So it's important to enrich the uh, judiciary with people who've had different life experiences. And that means diversity has to be at the core of that as well. Absolutely. I mean, let's get into the nitty gritty, if we can, a bit more on diversity. Um, and of course, by diversity, we're meaning here gender, race, age, the professional background that somebody might have had, the educational experiences somebody might have had. Um, I just wanted to give our listeners, if I may, a few statistics that came out of the latest judicial diversity report that was published um, last year in July. Um, so 42% of um, the judiciary are women, and that includes um, those that work in tribunals. Um, and 12% of, of judges and, and tribunal judges are from a Black, Asian and ethnic minority background. Um, and in terms of the route to the profession, 67% of court judges were barristers before they, they took that role. 
Um, now, our listeners might have heard of the Sutton Trust, a, a social mobility charity, um, and they found in one of their reports um, that 65% of the most senior judges in England and Wales, so we're talking here about the Supreme Court, the Court of Appeal and the High Court, um, went to an independent school, a private school. Um, and just to put that in context, that compares with 7% of, of the overall population who were, were privately educated. So we've had some listener questions that have come in um, and, uh, and some of these relate to diversity. Um, so one in particular is, is very interesting. Um, this is from one of our listeners who is a law student and who is also in the 1.65% of magistrates who are under 30. So they sit as a magistrate um, and they've asked the following question. So there's a minimum of five years practice, either as a solicitor or a barrister for judicial roles. But the reality is that it appears that judicial appointments are still overwhelmingly awarded to barristers with 20 plus years experience. Now, our listener asks, do you believe that the Judicial Appointments Commission seriously considers applications from solicitors and from those who are at the lower end of accrued practice years for junior judicial roles? Well, the Judicial Appointments Commission are uh, separate from the judges. Judges don't appoint judges. There's an independent commission that makes recommendations to the Lord Chancellor and the Lord Chief Justice about who is a candidate worthy of judicial office. Parliament has set the bar to become a judge and defined something called the merit test. So Parliament has decided that judges must be appointed on merit. The Judicial Appointments Commission use that as the yardstick. Now, the Judicial Appointments Commission look at every candidate and ask themselves, have they demonstrated the competencies needed of a judge? Every candidate comes in, in a sense, equal, but they do come in equal on the basis of their past life experience. So the Judicial Appointments Commission will apply the same test to everyone, but not all of us may arrive at the starting line together. And it may be that the different experiences different types of lawyers have may equip them in different ways to deal with the appointments process, but of course, it will also equip them for the judicial office they're applying for as well. So as a first instance judge dealing with uh, people who often don't have lawyers, they may be looking for a different skill set in me as a judge who has to do trials than the cerebral thinking that an appeal court judge might do. So there, there'll be a difference in the evidence and the difference in the skill set that you bring to the post. A lot of work has to be done, it is being done, and continues to be done on solicitor appointments. Now I have to say, once upon a time, solicitors perhaps didn't think that they could become judges. So historically, it was barristers who became judges. But that's changed in recent years and certainly there are more and more solicitor appointments. There, is, uh, there, is, there have been solicitors uh, in the Court of Appeal. And Lord Justice Hickenbottom comes to mind. Uh, he, he started off uh, as a parking adjudicator. Strange enough, he was dealing with parking tickets. 
with me. All the best people did by the sounds of it. <laughs> He's now sitting in the Court of Appeal as a solicitor. So it is happening, um, but I, I accept that there's more to be done. Very interesting. I mean, that leads me nicely, actually, on, on, on to the next question that's coming from a listener. Um, so this is a law student listener who's asked this question. Um, in what ways has diversity progressed since you entered the profession? You, you've just spoken about um, an increase in those with a solicitor background. But is, there, is there anything else that comes to mind? Well, I was appointed a part-time judge, a fee-paid judge, in 2003. And what I've certainly seen is a lot younger judges. I mean, it's really, really obvious now uh, that judges are getting appointed all around me at a far younger age than I was appointed. And, you know, I was one of the first to be appointed after they kind of got rid of the minimum age limit because it was a kind of unwritten rule that you couldn't become a judge before you were in your 40s. Um, now, that's all gone. It's all gone. Once you hit the five years, you can apply though I accept that more judges are appointed, I think more like the 10-year mark rather than the five-year mark. So certainly, uh, the, and, and, and the, other, the other major, major difference I've seen is in relation to women judges. Uh, I mean, it really is quite stark. Um, my uh, immediate senior, the, the Chief Magistrate of England and Wales, is a woman. The, um, the Supreme Court, we had, of course, Baroness Hale, right at the top of the tree. The senior presider at the moment is uh, Lady Justice Thurwall. So certainly um, in relation to the number of women in senior positions, that's very clearly and obviously progress. Um, there are other areas where we need to make more pro progress. Yeah, yeah. And have you noticed that uh, there's been any kind of change in how society views the profession with, with that um, shift and that, that change in, in, in women and gender diversity? Well, I, I can't speak for society um, and uh, what, what they think, but I, I, I would have certainly thought they would see a far more representative um, judiciary who um, carry their ways of thinking uh, and perhaps different ways of thinking. The, the, there are surveys done on attitudes towards the judiciary. Uh, one thing I do know is there are very high levels of confidence in judges, and that has always been the case and that continues to be the case. Judge Graham, can I just ask, ask one question? Uh, I'm thinking, as you say, you were a partner in a, in a firm as well. When did you, as, as your career developed, I'm thinking, you know, as our, for our listeners, as your career developed, what started to make you interested or curious about the role and the pathway that you've now gone on to develop and drew you towards that? Well, I have to say for years, I, I argued that my argument was right. And, um, Sometimes I won, sometimes I lost. Um, but I, there came a time when I thought, you know what? I think I'd like to make that decision yeah. because my decision is as good as the decision <laughs> that's being made by them. Um, yeah. And so, uh, and also, you know, I, I, I am from an ethnic minority. Um, my parents came to the UK from Pakistan in the 1960s. Um, and I also thought, that, you know, people like me should should get involved. It's important for the judiciary to have people from different backgrounds. So I put myself forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very good, very good. Fred. Ajikram, if you, um, why is it important for, for law students or perhaps people doing other degrees or other pathways into a legal career to think about judicial roles at an early stage in their career? 
what's what's the, what's the value in it for them i think the point there is that it doesn't matter whether you want to become a, a solicitor or a barrister or a legal executive or whether you want to become a judge career planning starts at a very early age at a very early stage in careers there are things you can do early on which will help you get the job that you want so you know i often say to students um, uh, whether they're at school looking to go to university whether they're at university looking to get articles or pupillage um, or training contracts, you know, what are you doing beyond your studies? How are you going to evidence? How are you going to match what they're looking for? Do you really understand what they're looking for? And when they ask the question, do you fit the bill? What are you going to present as evidence? Now, that's something you're not going to be able to join the dots on overnight. Uh, so the sooner you start thinking about, how am I going to get that first job? How am I going to persuade a senior partner that I am worthy of a training contract with that particular firm or pupillage? What am I doing to evidence that? Am I doing the work experience? Am I writing the essays? Have I entered a competition? Am, am I showing I'm a winner? Yeah. Am I demonstrating that I want to win, that I work hard? And similarly for judges, there are competencies. Mm. And you can start very early on looking at what you are doing and what you will be able to put on the application later on in your career. So it's not unique to becoming a judge. I think that's something which all students and lawyers should be very conscious of. Yeah, it's interesting, Judge Ikram, because in one earlier episode, we talked about owning your own development and you say being very purposeful about the things that you you spend your time on you say and going beyond going beyond um and on all the things you've just said if you almost hear where you are looking back and giving advice to your younger self are there any things that you would you would you would you would do differently or that you would have tried perhaps or stretched yourself more in i shouldn't have messed around when i was at school because i made life far more difficult for myself i mean look it doesn't matter where you start. If you're good enough, you'll get there. But sometimes it's harder to prove you're good enough. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you start off with a lower second class honours degree from a polytechnic, sometimes you've got to work harder to persuade the senior partner that I'm your man. Yeah. Or when you're looking at trying to show your intellectual prowess, you know, if you've got a first from some posh university, it may be easier for you to say, look, hey, look at my stiffgut. I couldn't do that. Yeah. And one thing I do wish I had done was worked far, far harder when I was doing my A-levels because okay. I guess life would have been easier for me. Yeah, it's, bad. it's interesting. Yeah, because, you know, we've been thinking about all these transition points, as, as you say, in some of the earlier episodes as well. Um, Fran, we always like to, I'm conscious of time, we always like to, um, we always like to come up with some actions or some practical yes. takeaways for people to, to think about. Um uh, Fran, is there, is there one that one that's struck you? I've I've got one that's well. I tell you what, let me let me kick off with which should I kick off with one that actually struck me, Judge Ikram, for one of the things you said earlier. And I was very struck by your your thought of you know connecting with society. As you said all the different groups, and it made me think actually of perhaps an action for people of thinking how many different types of networks am I connected to, and where do I get my how many different points of view do I hear often? You know, so that I'm not just hearing almost a narrow point of view. And that, I say that's one, one action, perhaps, Fran, that we could, we could give to our listeners there. How can I connect with different perspectives? 
I suppose that was one thing that struck me, Judge Ikram, from one of the things you said. Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. Um, I also was thinking that many of these courts have public galleries. And I know that we have said in previous episodes that, you know, one of the scariest things sometimes for people who don't come from um, a background that, that, that might have experience of the profession is going into a law firm and putting a suit on and walking through those doors. And I wonder if the same is true of courtrooms. So um, perhaps not during this um, coronavirus situation that we have at the moment where you know, we're trying to limit numbers in courtrooms and many courts are still closed. But there are a number of public galleries and our listeners could go to their local magistrates yeah, court and, and, and sit on the bench. Um, um, Judge Ikram, I don't know if you've got any um, actions that you might like to, to, to advise our listeners on. Uh, I wouldn't advise a student to come and sit on the bench. Uh, he might get uh, dragged off. <laughs> Um, <laughs> if they want to go into the public area, they're very, very welcome. Um, the public area, definitely not the public. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> very good. Look, you know, law law isn't something which appears theoretical in books. It's 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 a living, real thing. And look, there's no substitute than going and actually seeing it in action. Yeah. It's you know, ju- ju- the and you know what, criminal law is. Is far more exciting than any novel someone could write. It's, <laughs> it's I totally agree with you. <laughs> it's better than real life. You want to see, you want to see a soap unravel. Go and watch a criminal trial. And okay. I often think, um, you know, students are tempted to go uh, straight to the court of appeal, you know, and, and to the to more senior courts, where actually you can get some really great experiences at, at the lower level courts, actually, and see that real, you know, the fact that law is about people. Oh, the drama is everywhere. You know, I, I'm I'm not a peeping Tom or anything, but, um, you know, you want to have insights into people's lives, you know. And remember, you know, people are coming at, in at times of their crisis. That, that, that's where the courts are. Yeah. You know, someone's got a real issue uh, and often extremely passionate about yeah. where they're at or they're in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Um, yeah. How does the law apply? How do you make those decisions? And, and as I say, it, it, you know, certainly in the lower courts, it's a mixture of uh, law and what actually happened? What are the facts? Did it happen this way? Did it happen that way? Was I actually there? Uh, and, and you hear the full story unravel because it, it's explained to the jury or it's explained to the magistrates. But, you know, you, you made a point earlier. This, this isn't all just about criminal law. Often people think about criminal law because it's the exciting, sexy end, maybe, of of law. But it's really, really interesting seeing, for example, immigration cases in the immigration um, chamber, in the asylum uh, and immigration chamber. Absolutely. Um, You know, people suffering persecution. The reality of what's on the ground in Iraq or some other far-flung country. That is as gripping and as interesting as anything you'll see in a criminal court. So tribunals are also amazing places to visit. And on that note, I um, I think we should probably wrap up for the episode. Um, thank you so much, Judge Ikram, for joining us. It's been really fascinating to, to hear your insights and, and your experiences. And, and, you know, thank you for all the work that you're doing as well in the profession to increase diversity. I think um, all of us on the Reimagined Law team here um, really think that that's that's wonderful thank you also to our listeners for submitting questions um, it was great to have feedback from you that we could put directly to our guest um, and thanks to Nigel as well um, so that concludes Pleasure. the episode um, thanks for listening and take care